Welcome to the Radiant Visalia podcast. Join us at one of our two services, 9 a.m. and 1045 a.m. Download the Church Center app or visit our website, radiantvisalia.com, to stay connected with us. All right, enjoy. And so I finally got around to phoning up to Fresno and asking uh, for Michael. I think I called Valley Christian Church. Is that mm-hmm. what it's called? Valley Bible. Valley Christian Center. Okay, Valley Christian Center. I phoned this church and asked for Michael. And they said that Michael um, had moved to Seattle. <laughs> and so I thought, dang, uh, that's a bummer. And then about six months later, I'm greeting people as they walk into Radiant Church. And if you don't know this... Um, If you're over 50, we've been praying for you to arrive. (laughs) No, seriously, I'm not joking. We've been praying for you to come. So when I see someone come in dressed like this, I'm all over it. So, So I run up to Michael and I'm like, you're not 18. You don't work at Starbucks. We'd like to have you here in our city. <laughs> and uh, so I introduce myself and I say, my name's Travis. And he says, my name's Michael, Michael Regeer. And I was like, hey, I tried to phone you about six months ago. And then he says to me, is everything okay? I go, maybe. <laughs> Glad you're here. Uh, so I was pretty excited. Michael's been here a part of Radiant for the last year now, correct? Yeah, about a year, yeah. Um, and has actually moved from Fresno to Visalia. Um, and I've really enjoyed my conversations um, and, and was impacted by Michael's testimony. So I asked that he would share it this morning because I think um, as we continue through Ephesians and talk about connection, um, he has a lot to say about how we connect and what keeps us from connecting with one another. So let's pray for Michael and he's going to share Father, thank you for what you orchestrate, and um, I want to thank you for bringing Michael here, and I just want to open my heart to receive him and to receive what he has to say this morning. I pray that your truth would penetrate our hearts, and we'd, and we'd respond to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I want to personally thank all of you for making um, me feel so incredibly welcome. Um, First time I came here, I just got hugs, was received. I mean, Trav wasn't kidding. You you guys were absolutely wonderful. I have felt more loved, more accepted. Um, Two reasons I'm in Visalia. Um, Been dating a wonderful person named Paula, who you've probably seen me around with a lot. And... um, felt like, gosh, it should probably be in the same city rather than driving back and forth, so I got an apartment here, and, and for you guys, for the church, and um, I still do some work in Fresno, doing some work here as well, and uh, it is just amazing um, what God is doing here in this fellowship. So I told Trav it's a little dangerous to ask me to talk about the subject he asked me to talk about, because he asked me to talk about the issue of connection, and uh it's really a subject that I've spent 
my adult life trying to figure out and, and learn more about. So um, we could spend literally weeks talking about this, but I'm going to talk about it really from the perspective of my own life and um, some of the experiences that I've had, which have been incredibly wonderful, incredibly difficult, um, so that you guys can, can really see it through the grid of somebody that said, gosh, I want to figure out how to connect. And uh, I just I started breaking up a little bit um, during worship because this whole concept of the love of God being more powerful, um, stronger than the power of death, really has been, been my theme for the last 20 years. And, um, and I've seen the reality and the truth of that over and over again in, in, the, in my own life and, and in the lives of people that, that I've had a chance to come alongside. Um, I want to just mention before I get started that um, if, you, if you're interested in a copy of my book, Hunt Paula Down... And one of the reasons I recommend this is because this, is, this book is an example of what happens when somebody gets so overwhelmed with God's love that, that you get this kind of like connection and you begin to write. Um, this was a very unusual experience for me. In 1999, I had this incredibly deep connection with God. Woke up one morning and started writing about love. Wrote the whole thing front to back in two months, just in mornings um, during my devotional time. We ended up publishing it without editing anything except spelling, punctuation, that kind of stuff. So it's a, it's a flow from front to back, written in God's voice, talking about what love is. And um, it, I've seen it transform the lives of many of my clients. So I recommend that to you. Um, how do you get there? How do, you, how do you get, how do any of us get to this place where we're in that kind of flow, where we're feeling that connection, where we know that connection? Well, I'm going to tell you some stories about kind of my life and, and what has evolved and how I've experienced that, how I've not experienced it over the years. So if you go to the thriving metropolis of Reedley, which many of you have been to... There's a, there's a high school called Emanuel High School, and there's tennis courts there. And across the street from that tennis courts, it's called Hope Street, is my parents' house. And that's where I grew up, in that house. And um, it was great because I literally could, like, stay in bed till I heard the bell. <laughs> and then kind of, you know, put something on my hair and go across the street and make it to class. So it was a perfect situation. For somebody that liked to sleep in. So, um, yeah, so I went, went to Emmanuel High School. I grew up in Mennonite culture. If anybody, any of you know what Mennonite culture is, um, lots of good, solid biblical teaching, um, lots of duty, lots of hard work. Um, I was a uh, high school football player. I, you know, kind of like tore it up on the, on, 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 the, um, on the field as a linebacker and a fullback and, and um, was a real hard worker as a young guy and um, went, from ta- went from Emmanuel to Reedley College, played football there, went to Tabor College, which is the sister school of Pacific College. And um, so it's a Mennonite school out in the Midwest. 
And then I came back to do um, some time in seminary here in Fresno. And why do I tell you all that? Well, because I was searching. I, I was searching already in college about how to connect. And I, I was somebody that, um, you know, was like a normal kid, drove a Camaro and played football and did all that stuff. But deep inside of me, there was this kind of empty disconnection. And it was a deep disconnection. And I didn't even understand how deep it was until later in life. Now, let me back up to about the time I was born. Because about, about the time I was born, something happened that affected everybody in this room. It was a very unique time in history. A very unique time. It affected an entire generation, everybody my age, and your generation, unfortunately, is suffering the repercussions of it. You know what it is? Well, a lot of things. One of them was, was behavioral psychology. So during the time that people my age came into this world, there was a whole child-rearing practice which suggested that if you just show kids the carrot and you don't reinforce bad behavior, they're going to be okay. And they'll do better than if they're doing bad things and you, re- and you reward them for those bad things. So a guy named B.F. Skinner was really popular then, another guy named Spock, in terms of child-rearing. So what happened during that, age, that era? Mothers across the board were told that they shouldn't breastfeed. Not only that, but, I mean, we've got a lot of mothers in here, but can you imagine being told that it's better to let your kid cry itself to sleep than to pick it up when it needed to be held? That's what all of our mothers were told. Practically every guy in this room and woman in this room that's, that's 40 or between 40 and 60 were raised that way. They cried themselves to sleep. They weren't breastfed. Essentially, they weren't nurtured at the most important time in their life for connection and bonding. So then what happens to this whole group of people? Well, they grow up disconnected. They grow up terribly disconnected, and they get into college, and they grow up under authority. So we grew up under this initially under this incredible authority regime. Religion was all about authority. It was all about doing the right thing. And we tried our best to do the right thing. And it was all about structure and leadership, and you, you obeyed whoever was on top of you, and you tried to do the right thing. And we got lots and lots of sermons, biblical sermons, about the right kind of behavior. But you know what? We were empty. We were disconnected. And many of us got into college, and the lid flew off. We said, we're not going to take this stuff anymore. We haven't been connected with. We haven't been loved. We've been controlled. And so the people were a little bit older than me that, that, that acted out in the 60s, but a whole generation began to act out in, in a way that was unprecedented in history. And if, 
you know, you, you guys have read about it, I'm sure, but, but, but to see it happen, to watch it happen, to live through it was absolutely remarkable. I mean, there were riots on college campuses. I mean, kids began to drop out of school. The, the, the drug and sexual revolution just went crazy because people had an emptiness inside they just couldn't fill out. And it was deep, and it was dark, and it was demonic. And if you listen to a lot of the music from my era, it's flat-out demonic. It's demonic. Because you, you create enough anger, and you create enough emptiness, and what do people go to? They go to rage, and they want something to fill that up. And they'll call on any force to make them feel more powerful, to make them feel better. So we got a whole thing going on there with, with people acting out during, during the sexual and drug revolution. And then um, we got a whole philosophy of uh, how men and women should be in the world and that they shouldn't be any different. And uh, you know, I think it's great that women have careers. No problem with that. But when it interferes with their God-given role of nurturing infants, there's a problem with that. And uh, I got guys my age got so paranoid about trying to to not um, in any way discriminate and support. I mean, we didn't even know whether we should open doors for our girlfriends because somehow, how would they take that? Because we didn't want to treat them somehow any different than us. I mean, we were really kind of messed up during those, those, those years. And men and women's roles got all confused during those years. So it was a really interesting time to grow up, you guys. Um, and uh, the disconnection um, was huge. It was deep. Um, the other thing that was happening in, in uh, church and in theology during those years is before my era in the 1940s or so, this whole theological orientation came in called dispensationalism. And the idea in dispensationalism was that the Holy Spirit and, and that the works of the Spirit were, were really um, only for the time of the apostles so it gave the church this big out, this big reason for, um, for saying, look, we don't need the gifts of the Spirit. We don't need healing. In fact, healing isn't for our day. It, it's, it's, it, it was for that day and not for this day. And essentially, what we got was something I call biblical behaviorism. Because what we got was, was teaching that came across the pulpit that said, look, just do the right things and you're going to be a great Christian. Do the right things and you're going to be a great Christian. And the Bible is like this recipe book for what you should be doing. Now, what's the problem with that? The problem with that is that the things we're asked to do in the Bible are supernatural things. You cannot do those things. They're beyond your capacity to do. But people like me, we grow up Sunday after Sunday being told, do these things, do these things, do these things. 
We're never prayed for to do these things. We're never taught that there's a power greater than us that can help us do these things. We're told to do these things. What does it do? It produces incredible guilt, shame, and disconnection. What does that result in? Well, it results in what we call dualism. So we we have our church life, and then we have our business life. Now, is any of this ringing true in terms of what America is into right now? Enron, I mean, we can go on and on about this dualism. Um, The guy that ran Enron taught Sunday school, and then he ended up spending the retirement of his entire corporation. How do you do that? How do you do that stuff? Well, you've got two faces. You've got your face for the world, and you've got your face for church. And at some level, you know you can't do what you're told to do in church out there. It's a different set of rules. So you behave one way here, one way there. Right? Not only that, but then you have kids. And you're told that you're... You're somehow told that your career is more important somehow than spending tons of time with your kids. And all this pressure is put on women now to produce the same way men do. And you weren't connected with, so you don't know how to connect with your kids. So you go, well, gosh, you know, if I just give them better ski lessons and better music lessons and better stuff, it's all going to be okay. But, you know, the stuff doesn't make it okay, does it? Because what we need is connection. We need connection. Let me say it again. We need connection. We desperately need connection. So I fell into all the traps. Uh, just about every one of them, I tell you. Um, after uh, after graduate, or after doing some time in seminary, really to understand the relationship of how the Bible works to psychology, because I was deeply interested in all that. It's called Psychology, Theology, Integration. Um, I decided to do my PhD in psychology, did that. Um, Knew that there was a lot of emptiness within me, so um, was required to do a year, be in counseling myself for a year. That wasn't enough. Did a number of more years in counseling. That didn't seem to do the trick. Um, still pretty empty. So what do people generally do when things aren't getting better? They do more of the same. I, I, it's my more of the same principle. So, so if your life isn't going well, will you do more of the same thinking more of the same will make it better? For me, more of the same was just working harder, getting more recognition, and climbing up the academic ladder. For some people, more of the same as, well, maybe I'll just have another kid. Other people, more of the same as, well, maybe I just need to drink a little bit more. But everybody does more of the same, usually. They rarely break out of their box and try something else. So for me, more of the same was just, you know, working harder. And so that work got me a lot of places. It felt like I was, made me feel like I was pretty important. By the time I was 32... I was at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. I was on faculty at um, the School of Medicine there as a psychologist. Um, I was on track for a um, world-class career in research and teaching and uh, supervising a whole bunch of people and writing um, important research papers, presenting them at national conventions. 
Um, now, you could imagine that there's a little bit of pressure associated with that, right? So what, what could make it worse than what I was doing? I was living in Delaware. I was commuting to another state to make that work every day. Well, I was also living with somebody who was in medical school during that time. So we had this brilliant idea to make both of our careers work. We lived in one state and both commuted to different states every day. So I commuted to Maryland. She commuted to Pennsylvania. She did brilliantly in her career. Um, she, she got this award for being um, the most outstanding medical school student in her medical school at, at Jefferson, which is a very prestigious eastern school. At the same time, I'm doing all this stuff at Hopkins. I'm kind of traveling around doing presentations. Little problem, though, we weren't connecting. And we kind of thought, gosh, you know, we'll work really hard, and at some point we'll get back to each other. Let me tell you guys something. Right now, at your ages, you're making decisions about connection in your relationship with each other and with your kids. And once the intimate bond is broken, it is very, very difficult to restore intimacy in a relationship. Paul and I talk about it all the time because we're going, gosh, we got this, this time around it has to be different. has to be different. What happens to people, and, and, and I'll tell you what, there's a lot of bad teaching in the Christian world about marriage. And the other thing is I got a specialty in marital therapy. And if you haven't guessed yet, after working at that marriage for 26 years, it ended. She finally said, I'm done. And I went through years of guilt and shame about that. Like, gosh, I can save other people's marriages, but I can't save my own. And it was horrible. Well, the problem was that the marriage ended after about 10 years in terms of connection. We took another 16 to try to keep it going. The problem is that most people in relationships that are Christians are more committed to the commitment than they are to the connection. Think about that. Write that down, please. Most Christians are more committed to the commitment than they are the connection. So staying committed, you know, not acting out, not having affairs, and staying with this thing no matter how dead it is, is what they're committed to. And it doesn't dawn on them that in Mosaic law, in the Old Testament, the criteria for divorce was hardness of heart. It was hardness of heart. Because they figured back then that if your heart was hard, you didn't really have a relationship. And you know what? That's, that, that's the same thing that goes with God as well. Sorry, you guys. I'm sorry for all of us. But if our heart is heart toward God, I don't care what you're doing. I don't care what a wonderful citizen you are. But you don't have a relationship with us. You have a bunch of behaviors. You have a bunch of moralistic behaviors. 
And the criteria for having a relationship with God is not your ethical behavior. We want to be ethical, but I know a lot, not a lot of non-believers that are more ethical than believers. Ethics won't get you in. Love will get you in. Love will get you in. Love will grow your relationship. Love will transform you. So I got the privilege of being able to talk about Ephesians. And I love Ephesians. It's my favorite book in the whole Bible. So we're going to look at some of the text related to this. This whole issue of love as, as being central in the faith. Love, connection, and why it's just so incredibly, incredibly important. So, let's look at Ephesians 3. And I'm going to go to 14 to start with. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, now get this, okay? That you being rooted and established in love. What does it say here? Does it say rooted and established in your effort? Does it say rooted and established in your good behavior? No, it says rooted and established in love, okay, may have the power. So he's praying that, that they will have the power to be rooted and established in love. Okay, it may have the power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. So that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness with God. Now, when I was going to church, when I was a young person, um, again... My life was mostly about commitment, and I didn't know a lot of connection. And it wasn't until I was at Hopkins, and I was disconnected in my marriage, and basically I'd reduced my friend pool to just a couple of people because I wasn't really in community anymore. Um, I was going to church but not connecting because it was all about work and um, and being on the road. And I got more and more empty. I got more and more depressed. And literally, I, I, I reached a crisis point. That crisis point was in 1990. And um, I was driving back from, from Hopkins one evening, and I thought, gosh, you know, I am in so much pain. Why am I even alive? And for a brief moment, I thought, gosh, if I drive my car off this bridge, I wouldn't have to feel this kind of pain anymore. I was, I was just at the bottom. And the reason the crisis was so difficult 
for me is there was a whole integrity thing with that. It's like, like you know, psychologists really aren't supposed to feel this way. I'm in all the, I'm responsible for all these people, right? And this is a real problem because here I am. I've done all the therapy. I'm at the top medical school in the world, and I don't know how to help myself. So, like, what do you do? And not only that, but guys, I've been to seminary, okay? I mean, I was in a real conundrum. I didn't know who to talk to. I didn't know where to go. Because, actually, for me, seminary was a real low point. I wasn't feeling God there either. I wasn't connecting there either. I was just learning a bunch of stuff. And I'm glad for that period of time, because, I mean, the church history and a lot of stuff I learned was great, but... But it, it certainly didn't meet these deep heart needs that I had. And uh, so I woke up after that experience at four in the morning to go running out in the cold. And it was kind of raining. And I began to run and cry and run and cry. And something happened to me. For the first time in my life, I got really angry at God. Because the deal was, I had worked really hard to do the right stuff. Um, The summer after my high school year, I went to Belgium to do missions work. I mean, I was a good kid, you know. And the hospital I was at before Hopkins was a Christian psychiatric hospital. And I worked there with all these Christian psychologists from Fuller and and Rosemead and other places. And, you know, I mean... But, but I was still empty. So I, I had tried, I'd, but I'd played all my cards out, right? It's like church, the seminary didn't work, and, and uh, psychology didn't work. And, and, and I just said, I said to God, I, if you don't show me that you're real, I'm walking away from you. I am done. I was pissed. I had had it. I was tired of playing church. I was tired of playing games. And I knew that my life was really on the line, trying to do this stuff that wasn't working. And uh, something kind of remarkable happened in that experience. I actually had what was for me something like a vision. Now, that was unusual because I was never told about those things when I went to church, that God actually ends up talking back when you talk to him. (laughs) It kind of surprised me a little bit. So I got a picture of, of of King Arthur out in the woods with Merlin. And the picture was one of, well, Michael, since you're actually taking me seriously now, I'm going to start talking to you directly. I'm going to be your father. And like Merlin learned to be a great, Arthur learned to be a great king by talking to this Merlin figure, I'm going to start teaching you if you'll just listen to me. And that experience was so real to me, I wept and I wept. And um, I didn't know exactly what it meant, what was going to happen after that, but I knew God had talked back and I knew something was going to shift about a week went by and I get this brochure in the mail and um, it was of um, something that had been offered at the Catholic, was being offered at the Catholic Church 
Now, I'd never been to a Catholic church, and when I was growing up, you know, we didn't go to Catholic church. We went to Mennonite church. And, um, but it, the, the brochure captured me because it was on inner healing. Now, in those days, I was a real academic snob, and I never would have gone to anything that wasn't scientific or, you know. But there was something that was coming through from God saying, you need to go to this thing on inner healing. And kind of what hooked me a little bit was that a woman was giving it that um, had been a professor at the University of Delaware. So I thought, what's this academic person doing something soft like this on inner healing? And Well, maybe I should just go to kind of figure it out. So... um, (laughs) I find myself in the basement of this Catholic church with about 200 what looked like recovering people. And um, I thought, what am I doing here? You know, <laughs> what in the world am I? I don't need to, you know, but all, you know, I'm curious. I had some academic interest, right? So um, I, I start listening to this woman give this talk, and I absolutely was spellbound. Because what I saw happen there blew my mind. I heard somebody that, that she did a little bit of thing on, on neuroanatomy and how the brain works. And she just made it really clear that she was no dummy. She, she knew her psychology. And then she shifted on us. And she began to talk about love. And she began to talk about the, the, the deep heart need that we all have for connection. And the thing was, you guys, she radiated the love of God. I mean, we talk about radiant church, you know? Like, what is that? What is this radiation thing? Well, this radiation thing isn't to kill, it's to transform. It's this kind of love of God that that has the potential to well up in all of us. And that was weird for me because most of us psychologists are taught to be bland and objective, you know? And to almost be kind of clinical and sterile and scientific and almost surgical in terms of the way we relate to people. She wasn't doing any of that. I mean, she was out there with her feelings. She was out there with her love. And she told this story about elephants. Now, uh, usually if, if, if you want to get to me, don't, don't get to me through academics. Tell me a very simple child story and I'll melt, you know. So she, she kind of did that. And she talked about how Baby elephants, if they're separated from their, their mothers, will actually go into mourning and weeping because their, their need to connect is so strong. And then she talked about how the way we're wired, okay? And the way we're wired is that we're, we're human people with a divine spirit in us. And if you can kind of think about it in, in this way, the same way that our humanity needs human connection, our spirits need divine connection. And unless our spirits are connecting with the Spirit of God, we will grieve. We will grieve. And every one of you, I'm sure, can, can identify a time in your life when you felt empty and you felt kind of lost. And you were going, like, why? Because, I mean, maybe there were reasons for it. Maybe there weren't. I mean, at the time I was grieving, you know, a lot of things really weren't that bad. But I was grieving. Because my spirit that was made to be nurtured and loved by God 
was not connecting with God. It was all duty. It was all hard work. And, um, and then she did something kind of remarkable, which really kind of messed me up. She said, I'd like people to come forward, and I'm going to pray for you. So I watched this woman actually hold people's hands, look into their eyes, pray for them, and I watched people having these transformative experiences. And I'd never seen it. It's like, oh, I'll just do that. That was like way out of the box. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, way out of the box. Her name is Lois. So I said, Lois, after the thing, I, you know, I said, gosh, so I'm still in kind of like steady mode. Well, I've I got to kind of figure this out. Like, what's been happening here, you know? And can you explain your theory to me, you know? Like, <laughs> what, what are you doing? This is really strange, you know? Can, can we have lunch? Can we talk? So she said, sure. Yeah, let's, let's have lunch. And so we're... We're eating hot dogs, and um, there's uh, two objects, okay? So, like this, right? Two objects on the table. One was ketchup, ketchup and one is mustard. And so, she tells me about herself. She tells me that while she's at the University of Delaware, she has this God encounter that's so profound and so real, and she hears God say, quit the university. Now, she's director of clinical training in a tenure-track position, not easy to get. She quits the university. She's been at home now, to, when I meet her, for eight years, reading her Bible, reading the mystics, and um, leading a women's Bible study, and volunteering time in a Catholic retreat center to do inner, inner healing prayer. Now, what motivates somebody to do that? That was pretty unusual. And I thought, huh. And then, to make matters worse, she looks at me and she says, Michael, I, I know what's wrong with you. Now, I hadn't told her any about, anything about myself. And I'd paid therapists thousands of dollars to figure that out. And she had the audacity just right off the bat to tell me she knew what was wrong with me. And I said, well, give it a shot. You know, a lot of people have tried to figure that one out. And so she, she looks at me and she says, okay, Michael, so... Okay, so this is you. You think you're really big, and this is God, right? She goes, the problem is, you think this is real, but you're not so sure about this. Now, if she would have argued theology with me, we could have gone rounds. But I'm telling you what, you guys, she got me. Because I thought that I was more real than God is. I thought that what I thought and felt was more true and more real than supernatural reality. And you know what? I'm not that different. At that time, I wasn't that different than most people growing up in church. Now, if you think about it, come on, you guys, think about it. Just, think, just even rationally think about it. We are created in God's image. He isn't created in ours. He is the divine creator. He is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-everything. And we are born into sin. We are born flawed. And every one of you, like me, get paranoid. We project. We, you know, we get insecure. We have all of this stuff. So how do we have the audacity 
to think that our thoughts and perceptions and who we are is more real than who God is. But that's what most of us do. That's the psychology of fallen man. Okay? That's what we do. And this is the problem with a lot of counseling. So, um, Nate comes to me and says, you know, doctor, I've got a problem. And I say to you, Nate, ah, after dropping my book, I say to you, well, how do you feel? Well, I feel somebody is this and this and this. And I say, oh, that's too bad. (laughs) What have I just done? I've reinforced his unreality. I've reinforced his unreality. All in the name of trying to make him feel better. Because what he's feeling is only partially true. So you guys, the only way we can know what's true is to look at the one source of reality that is true and to seek to hear what's true from God. So Lois said to me, she said, she said something really interesting, and I'm going to ask each one of you this question. She said, Michael, do you have feelings of love for God? And I said, well, I've done all this stuff for him. I've done mission trips, um, president of my youth group, good guy, you know. No. Do you have feelings of love for God? No. I honestly had to tell her I had no feelings of love for God. Score number two. She says, well, if you're supposed to love him with your heart, soul, and mind, wouldn't it be good if you had a few feelings for him? (laughs) Think about it. How can you have a divine romance with anybody you don't have feelings for? You know what I was taught growing up? That it was faith, fact, feelings. And that these feelings were like the caboose. And you really didn't even need them. Just have the faith and the facts. You know what? We can get fooled by feelings. No doubt. We can just, we can, we can just as easily get fooled by the facts. Just ask Rich. He's an accountant. You know, The facts can fool you. Right? And, and in our, our scientific, modernistic world, you know, we were taught to believe that it's science that reigns supreme overall, that it's the facts, biblical fact, that will save you. You can have biblical facts and a hard heart and go to hell. Okay? The facts aren't going to save you. Neither are distorted feelings, by the way. So I'm not saying, but you know what? Feelings can be true. And feelings can, and intuition give, can give us really, really important information when we're healed up and we can feel the right things. So God wants us to be whole. Let me read a little section about that in Ephesians, which just totally validates that. If you guys look at, um, I just love this section. It's um, Ephesians 2, 14. It says, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. 
His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. Okay, so what's that all about? There's a struggle in all of us. Mentioned a little while ago, we're spiritual and material beings. The material side of us would like to save ourselves. What did Adam do when he sinned? When he, he blamed Eve, right? He wanted to save himself. He abandoned intimacy right away. He abandoned his relationship with her to make himself look good. That's what we all do over and over again. We do everything possible in our own human strength to save ourselves. It doesn't work. You can't do it. It's only in Jesus that we find our peace. Because he said, look, it's not about the law. You can't work hard enough to do this. You can't strive hard enough. You can't be good enough. I am your peace. Now look, just just admit it. Could you just admit it? You're human and you're going to screw up. If you just confess that to me, that you've screwed up and you're going to screw up, what I'm going to do is I'm going to forgive you for the fact that you can't do it. Because I know you can't do it. I'm going to forgive you, and I'm going to, and I already love you, but I'm going to show you how much I love you. But you know what? I can't show you how much I love you if you still think you can do it without my love. Because your heart's going to be closed toward me. So Lois said to me, she said, well, maybe, could I just pray for you that maybe your heart would open up? Maybe you could feel the love of God? So I said, sure. So she anointed me with oil. That had never happened to me before. She prayed for me. And I felt something shift a little bit. And then she said, gosh, pretty hard, isn't it? Said, yeah. She said, well, maybe you should come over to the retreat center, and Angie and I will pray for you together. So I, I went down there, and I found myself being prayed for with the inner healing prayer. And I got another picture. The first picture I got was of the hands of the ancestors reaching out from history trying to pull me back as they were trying to set me free. It was just freaky. It was the weirdest thing. And we did away with that, and I felt something begin to shift. A week later, I'm sitting in my office. I had a cancellation, and the strangest thing happened to me, you guys. I began to feel love for God. Not just a little bit, but it's like it came from nowhere. And I wasn't like reading my Bible and saying, oh, God, I should really love you. I wasn't singing praise songs. It came from here somewhere, and it began to flow up. I began to feel love for God. And almost in amazement, it was like, wow, this is weird. I said, you know, God, I just, I just really love you. And just like that, I cannot tell you, it was like this wind, this holy wind began to blow through me. And it, I, I felt at that point separated from my being. I felt my spirit somehow was connecting with God. I felt like I was so close to him for that brief moment of time that I could literally disintegrate. Because there's one thing you realize when you're next to holy God is how imperfect you are 
at that point, how other he is. And I began to scream, and I began to weep, and I was literally, absolutely changed in terms of who I was in perspective to who God was in that instant. I was a different creation from that point on. My motivations changed. My heart changed. And I would begin to drive to work. And I don't know if you ever heard of John Michael Talbot, but he's a great, great Catholic um, kind of mystic singing about the love of God. I would listen to him, and I'd cry, and I'd cry, and I'd cry. I did this. I must have cried for a couple of years. I mean, it was, and, and, and I'd hear one thing over and over again in the strangest places. I could be in a supermarket, you know, picking up a head of cabbage or something, and I'd hear God say, you know, Michael, I love you, and I'd start crying in the supermarket. <laughs> you know, and he had to tell me, uh, literally, over and over and over again because of the depth of my own disconnection. So for me to be able to carry that and not to harden up again, I needed to hear it a lot. I needed to experience it a lot. I needed to live in it a lot. And it was an incredible, incredible time. And I wish I could tell you all the stories, including, you know, this book came out of it. There was a time when I was in Seattle where I felt like I needed to worship. I was alone and and I hadn't played guitar in 15 years. I pulled out my old ovation guitar out of my closet and the thing was out of tune and tried to tune it up and my fingers were a mess and I was basically inventing chords because I didn't even remember a lot of chords but you know what happened is I began to write because I didn't know many songs I, I wrote 20 songs in a little over two months and they'd come almost in whole and uh, I, just crazy stories so and then somebody tells me about this guy. And then God says, I want you to record these songs. I'm going, well, I, I'm not even as good as a beginning musician. But So anyway, I, somebody that I was working with told me about this guy that was producing named, named Gary Lance. I, I heard David Lance play in Philadelphia at a huge auditorium. He's a phenomenal um, piano player. And Gary's David's brother. Long story short, I end up in his studio recording with him. And it was all an act of faith. God said, I will get you through this. And I would play my little songs and cry, and the Holy Spirit would show up. And we were mixing a song one time, and the Spirit came into the room. And Gary was new age, you know. But he could feel stuff. He'd go, what is that? And I'd go, well, Gary, it's the Holy Spirit. And um, he'd go, yeah, that's really weird, you know. <laughs> So stuff like that happened to me over and over and over again. And, you know, pastor's conference. I did the West Coast Mennonite pastor's conference and began to talk about the love of God. And the love fell on the place. And pastors were coming up and saying, would you just pray for me? You know, I haven't felt this kind of love. Um, Last summer I was in England and I talked to a bunch of people about the love of God. And I was asked to preach on the way to a church service and all of a sudden I found myself up there and talking and and these English college students were just so heady and as we began to talk about these heart issues man they would come up and we'd begin to pray over them and they would just 
collapse under the, under the love of God. And the point is, you guys, love, the love of God is supernatural. And, and we've got to be really clear about the difference between human love and supernatural love. So there's a little book by Bonhoeffer that I highly recommend. It's called Life Together. Bonhoeffer was martyred. Um, he was killed by the Nazis in 1945. Um, but he understood some fundamental truths about Christian community. Now, the group I grew up with tried harder than anybody I know to make Christian community happen. To the point where they lived separate from the world. They lived in colonies. Um, my ancestors come from Russia. They can be traced all, all the way back to the Reformation. They're high, high value on community to this day. High value on community. The problem is, if you create community with rules rather than relationship and love, you get stagnation. You get hardness of heart. You get a lot of duty. So if we want to be a connected people, and if we want to overcome the kind of deep childhood wounds we have, because none of us grew up in the kind of families either that were as connected as they need to be, few of us. There may be two or three of you here that really grew up in great families. Most of American culture is a mess. And all of the problems we're seeing right now in the economy are disconnection problems. Um, they're corporate people that are betraying each other's trust, frankly. And they've gotten greedy and materialistic, and it's all about me. And they forget about who's serving them as leaders. And the whole thing, in terms of the whole mortgage problem, it's all turned upside down because... You know, people have taken advantage of each other. They haven't been connected. They haven't really cared about the good of others. The thing is, it's supernatural. If we really want to care, it's supernatural. And Bonhoeffer talks about that. He says, because community is founded solely on Jesus Christ, it is a spiritual and not a psychic reality. In this, it differs absolutely from all other communities. The scriptures call pneumatic spiritual that which is was created only by the Holy Spirit who puts Jesus Christ into our hearts as Lord and Savior the scriptures term psychic as human that which comes from the natural urges powers and capacities of the human spirit so our human spirits must be led by the Holy Spirit or we're going to behave in very human fallen ways and uh, what I believe we're all trying to get at here as a body is, is connection and love and community transformation um, but the whole key to all of that is letting go of control and saying God I want your Holy Spirit to fill me with love and to lead my life so most of what I try to do day to day is say, okay, God, what's next? And I try to listen. Do you want me to go here? Do you want me to go there? I'm getting on a plane to go to England on Wednesday. I don't really want to go. God said go. 
and I usually argue with them and deny them at least two times before I say, okay, I'll go. So I'm going to England not knowing why I'm going to England. I went to Germany last summer not knowing why. To, I ended up ministering to this home group, and all this stuff began to happen because I was obedient to the voice and love of God. Now, if you live your life that way, you're going to look foolish to people. You will. Um, I've looked foolish to a lot of people. My Vita, since encountering the Holy Spirit, looks pretty ridiculous. You know, Prior to that, I made all the right steps, and I was publishing my way into fame, and it all looked pretty good. Now it's hard to make sense out of it on paper. It really is. But you know what? One thing I know is that the love of God has not left through all of it. And even when Brenda said, I'm done, um, God was there. And uh, I could tell you many, many stories of, of men's ministry and just many things that have happened where God has moved powerfully in our midst over and over and over again. And I'm really excited about being here in this church because I feel the presence of God and I believe that this is a people who want connection more than commitment, than empty commitment, that want to connect and that want to love more than just look like they're loving and look like they're in control. Love will put you out of control. Love will put God in control. And you won't look so cool, believe me. But you know what? He's going to look really cool. And that's what our lives should be about. So I'm going to ask people, uh, Sean, can you come up and just ask God what to play, and he'll tell you, and that'll be great. And, and anybody that wants to stay afterwards and um, get prayed for, we have some people that want to pray for you. And there's two things that I want you to think about getting prayed for. If you've never given the Holy Spirit control of your life, that's the place to start. Okay? Um, you know, we, there's all this argument about what baptism and the Holy Spirit is. A lot of evangelicals say, well, you know, when the Holy Spirit comes when you're saved and you really don't need to do anything after that. Well, there's a lot of evidence which suggests that there's another step. It's about letting go of control and saying, Holy Spirit, now you're in control. And I want to experience you, and I want to know you. That's what happened to me, and I've seen it. that to be true for many, many people. So if you want that, we want to pray for that. Secondly, that, that may have happened for you, but you're, you may be beat, and you may need more of the love of God to overcome your circumstances. I prayed for a fellow last week, and he came up to me today and thanked me because the love of God just totally helped him through his circumstances. And it was a wonderful thing to see. We just prayed, okay, God, more love, you know. And he absolutely was overtaken by the love of God. And he's, he's got some really tough stuff to, to deal with that humanly none of us could do. But you know what? With the love of God, we can do stuff that we can't do. So let me just pray. And um, those of you who want to come up and get prayed for, that would be just awesome. Father God, we just thank you that you are not a concept, you are not a category, you're not a theology. 
You're, you're not a list of duties. But what you are, God, what you are, is, is more than we can even begin to comprehend. And we can't even comprehend you without the help of your spirit. And you tell us that your desire for us is to know the height, depth, and width of who you are. So we need your revelation to even begin to comprehend that. So Father, God, have mercy on us here. Have mercy on us for our arrogance, for, for our stubborn determination to try to do it ourselves, to try to be good enough. And accept our surrender today. And let us become small so that you can become large. You said, come to me like children and you will see the kingdom. Oh God, may it be so. May we have the humility to be childlike before you. I just thank you, God, for each one here. And I just pray that not one would miss the incredible blessing that you have for them. Let's pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We want to be a resource for you as you walk with Jesus. So please connect with us at radiantbicelia.com. Until next time. There is a heavenly city that I'm compelled to find. Oh, I love the flowers and trees and the smell of the grinding sea and all the beautiful things here in life. And I